want to grab a Bible wherever you are and open to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. We're going to look at a couple verses in John 5 today as we wrap up this short series, two-week series, uh, called Journeying Together. This is a practice series, uh, and so just to orient you, if you're uh, new with York Alliance or you missed last week, practice series are a recognition of the fact that more knowledge is not the extent of what changes us. So one of the uh, things that we've sought to kind of orient ourselves around as a spiritual formation model at York Alliance is the recognition that we need to have good teaching, we need to have community, but we also need to have habits that parallel the lifestyle of Jesus. If we're going to be people who are apprentices of Jesus, who are learning to be like him and live like him in the world around us, we need to do the things that he did. And so what we do is over the course of the year, several times a year, we just pause whatever series we're in, and we engage in these practices, these habits that are part of the lifestyle of Jesus, and we seek to make them a part of our own lives. And so we're talking about journeying together, and we looked last week at the idea that Jesus journeyed with people around him, just as we're called to journey with people around us. Uh, typically, in our practice series, we have, uh, we have practice guidebooks. They're not like traditional study guides that give more information, but they teach us how to engage the practice. And so this one's a little bit different um, in recognition of the fact that journeying together is really what we call discipleship partners. We've done an overhaul of our discipleship partners material and re-released that. And so if you go to our website, you can download this booklet. It's like six or eight pages. You can read it in about five minutes. But it gives an overview of who, what discipleship partners are and what it looks like to engage that. And if five minutes and six pages is too much for you, there's a quarter sheet piece of paper, the cheat sheet. It's really nice and easy. We're going to talk about this a little bit more in just a minute, but it's a quick reference guide to what happens with discipleship partners. Because what we find is with a lot of people, um, meeting together is not the challenge. Meeting together in a way that's productive and helpful toward the gospel is a bit more challenging. And so the discipleship partner material helps us to engage that. So last week, if you were with us, we talked about what we called the why of journeying together. We looked at the idea that God has created us for one another. So when the Bible tells us it's not good for man to be alone, that's not talking primarily about a romantic relationship or a spousal relationship, husband-wife relationship, but it's talking about the need that we have for community. The fact that God has created us to need one another. That's not part of the fall. That's not part of our sinful nature. That's part of the way that God has, has put us together. That we, we can't live out the life of the Trinity by ourselves. We need other people. And that was true for Jesus. That when Jesus was here on earth, he modeled for us living in community with others, inviting the disciples into spending real life with him. And then we looked at a couple other ways that, um, uh, reasons why journeying together is so important. Um, one of the things that Jesus tells us is that we are forgiven as we forgive others. And that forgiveness process happens when we're close enough to one another to offend one another. We have to be uh, connected enough that we need to forgive. And that's part of journeying together. We um, challenge one another along the way and need to forgive. It's part of the way that we work out the gospel. It's also vitally important that uh, following Jesus makes it all the way into the details of our lives. We're called to not just be people who follow Jesus in the, the religious practices side, that we gather together maybe on Sunday morning or spend time in the morning in the Word or um, come together for small groups during the week or whatever it is. 
it's not just religious practices, it's in the details of life. How would Jesus live as an employee of the company that I work for? How would Jesus live in the midst of my family, in the midst of my community, in my friendships, doing my hobbies? Following Jesus has to get all the way down to the details of life, and journeying together is part of the way that happens, because we journey with one another through all parts of life, not just the religious sections of life, but through every aspect of our life. We let one another in, and it's part of the way that we begin to follow Jesus in the mundane. So last week was the why. This week, I'd like to take some time to look at the how. How do we do it? Practically, what's it look like? And I want to start this way. I want to give you five snapshots, and these snapshots will probably Some or all of them sound very familiar to aspects of your life, your life in Christ. So let me give you a couple snapshots. First snapshot, there's a group of people that are connected to one another that have been together for quite a while. Typically same gender. Maybe they meet in a home. Maybe they meet in the basement of a church back in a little Sunday school room somewhere. And they study the scriptures one part after another. Sometimes it's a book. Sometimes it's a book of the scriptures. Sometimes it's a a popular Christian book. But they study it and they ask some basic questions. What's happening here? Uh, How does this, what's it mean? And how does it apply? How does does it um, impact my life? And they're good questions, but typically it's passed around from person to person in terms of leadership. And they journey together, maybe with theological differences, maybe, um, maybe wrestling with a lot of things, maybe being very inconsistent theologically, but they continue to dig into the scriptures. That's one snapshot. Snapshot number two, there's a, a group of women, two or three or more, who meet together on a regular basis to walk the neighborhood or to walk a park. And through that walking, there are certain things that tend to be a part of their conversation. Conversation starts as soon as they start walking and goes all the way through to the times that they get into their cars or go back to their homes. The conversation is inconsistent. Sometimes it's about family. Sometimes it's about things that are happening in their lives. Sometimes they apply the way that God's working in their lives. Sometimes it's simply neighborhood gossip. They just are engaging with one another on a regular basis and talking with one another. Snapshot number two. Snapshot number three, switch genders now. Imagine York County, so imagine one of the dozens of diners around York County. Very early in the morning, two or three or more men gather together every single week, 6 a.m. on Tuesday or whatever it is, and they get there, and they have um, raucous, fun conversation all around all kinds of different things. They catch up about what's going on in their lives and what's happening in the game from last night and what's happening uh, with their family and their kids. They talk about work and, and they eat breakfast together while they laugh together. And then they get to this point as they begin to look at their watches and recognize their time's wrapping up where they ask one another in, in a way that almost feels like they're grinding gears in a car. They go from this very lighthearted conversation into this deep, serious conversation. And they ask one another very pointed and specific spiritual questions, often about specific sins in their lives. And then they typically confess to one another, pray together, and then wrap up and take off. Snapshot number three. Snapshot number four is a group of people in a living room who are 
meeting together week after week, often different generations, maybe different families, all of different ages, and they're talking about the scriptures with intentionality. They're applying the word to their lives. Um, They're talking about the way that they impact the world around them. The challenge, of course, is that when there's a group together like that, the same people tend to speak most weeks, and the same people tend not to speak most weeks. And when those people that tend not to speak are struggling, they tend to speak even less, and others tend to speak even more. But there's a consistency to their gathering as they journey together, snapshot number four. And finally, snapshot number five. There's a person, let's imagine them driving in a car, and they're thinking through their life. The radio's off, and they're just kind of processing Um, Maybe what's God doing? Maybe what's happening in the world around them? Maybe what's happening in their own life? And as they pull into their appointment a couple minutes early, they flip through uh, an imaginary Rolodex in their mind. Or if you don't know what a Rolodex is, they're kind of thinking through their phone directory, whatever that is. And they recognize there's four or five, six people whom they can call depending on what's happening in their life. And so if they're wrestling with family, they'd call one person. If they're wrestling with faith, they might call another person. If they're wrestling with work things, they might call another person. There are people in their lives who they know and trust, and they take whatever it is that they've been processing, and they make a quick five-minute phone call to touch base with somebody. All five of those snapshots maybe relate to the way that you have experienced journeying together. And let me say at the outset, none of those things are bad. In fact, there's lots of really good things about every one of those snapshots that I just laid out. But is it what Jesus meant when he calls us to journey together? What I want to try to unpack for us is that there's more to it. Let me just give you a brief history. Stick with me for another three or four minutes to say that each of those five things and dozens of others like them are products more of our culture than they are of what the Bible tells us to do as we journey together. For instance, early in the 80s, there were a bunch of people who flooded churches who were part of college ministries in the late 70s and early 80s. Things like InterVarsity Christian Ministries and uh, Campus Crusades were very active on college campuses. And uh, many, dozens, hundreds, thousands of people had these powerful experiences as they had these individual Bible studies led by other students, and they asked simple questions about the scriptures. And so as they flooded into churches, they recognized, why, why do we need to only sit under professional teaching? Lay leaders, that was a popular word back in the 80s, uh, lay leaders were able to to sit together and challenge one another and work together. And so these small Bible studies popped up and they became um, a, a vital part of the way churches interacted. Around that same time, moving into the late 80s, women were suddenly, even when they were young moms, in the workforce. And so uh, many women found themselves isolated because all of a sudden they're working full-time jobs while raising kids, while trying to manage a home. And at the same time, we moved disproportionately to the suburbs with a two-car garage and an automatic garage door opener. So now all of a sudden we would go into our garage, the garage door would come down, the heat's on in the winter, the air conditioning's on in the summer. We're no longer connected to the neighborhood around us. And so Women, more than men, because men had already built in a social network around their workplaces and other activities, were looking for social networks. All of a sudden, three or four women are walking together, journeying together, playing games together, cooking together, 
because they're looking for a kind of connection. Again, around that same time, just a little bit later than that, there are a variety of men in Christian ministry positions that are having exposed moral failures. Some of the worst parts of life are coming out in well-respected leaders. And as a response to that movement, an organization called Promise Keepers begins. And Promise Keepers is all about men being together and holding one another accountable to what it means to be good husbands and uh, good dads and good parts of churches. And so um, the, the Promise Keeper movement spawned an explosion of accountability relationships. All of a sudden, men who never talked about these personal things before now are in these relationships, and the basis of the relationship is, ask me this question on a regular basis. Ask me about this on a regular basis. Again, around the same time, the church growth movement started. And if that's a, a foreign term to you, don't worry about it. Basically, it was just a matter of churches scientifically and missiologically grounding their churches in what would make them grow fast. And so what ended up happening is that like-minded people, also like-looking people, it was a bit of an anti-diversity movement, um, like-minded people would come together, and the goal was to create ministry that would get people involved as quickly as possible, because church growth was all about as soon as you walked through the door, getting connected as soon as you possibly could. That meant dozens of ministries and churches, and so what was happening at the end of the 90s, moving into the 2000s, is that churches were finding they had lots of ministries and lots of connection but not a lot of community. There was a need for deeper heart connection. And so all of those ministries transitioned, and there was this explosion in the early 2000s of small group ministry, or cell groups, or life groups, or community groups, or growth groups, whatever it is that you want to call them. They all started, and every church had them because they wanted real connection. Again, good things, but real connection. And then about the same time, early in the 2000s, there was all of this research that came out that said churches were disproportionately filled with women and men were staying home because the Promise Keeper movement had kept the leaders moving, but all the rest of them were kind of sick of the entire process. And so men were staying home, women were coming to church, and in an effort to address that, all of a sudden there was this movement of masculinity from the pulpit where all of a sudden um, there were um, new metaphors being used, and um, there, there was a, a, a kind of an edge to the way that preaching was happening, as well as the way that churches were organized. Militaristic metaphors were all of a sudden being used in new ways, and so the Jesus who said, love your enemies, was being followed by groups of bands of brothers who were journeying together um, as they uh, tried to figure out how to live out the gospel. There's a bit of toxicity to it at times, but largely it was simply a matter of groups of men and then by extension groups of women who journeyed together with one another and they, they interacted based on what they needed at a specific time, often one-to-one -one, but in smaller groups. I give you the short history lesson not because you need to remember all of that, but because I want you to see that the way that we journey together is inextricably related to what's happening in the culture around us. We could do that same study for uh, the sacramental movement, for the holiness movement, for the Pentecostal movement. There are all of these things that happen, and we start to structure ourselves 
around what's happening in the culture. The question is, what does Jesus call us to? Rather than being highly experiential or highly sacramental or highly ceremonial, what's Jesus invite us into? Well, I think in John chapter 5, we have just a short passage that even in just four short verses unpacks for us a model that Jesus is inviting us into. So listen as I read. I'm going to read starting in verse 17 just to give you some context. The first part of John chapter 5 is Jesus coming to a, a, an area where there are a bunch of people who are paralyzed and sick in a variety of different ways, seeking healing. And Jesus, on the Sabbath day, as he often did, healed someone. The Pharisees got all worked up, like, can't you heal on a different day? You know, that's what they're all always worked up about. And Jesus responds to them about the way that God is working. And it's in that that I want us to dig in. So listen as I read, starting in verse 17. Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as we look at your word today, would you guide us? not just to know more, but to be different people. Teach us what journeying together means in our current context, not just with a a cultural construct, but with a deep biblical root that connects us to the source of life. And so Jesus, guide us, I pray. Guide my words that they would come from your spirit alone. May the words that come from my flesh fall to the ground and be forgotten. But may the words that come from your spirit penetrate our hearts, change us. God, make us more like you and help us to be people who step into the, the life that you have for us. And so guide us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I want us to look at two direct statements that Jesus makes, and then an application of that statement or an inference of that statement. The first one is that God is at work. The second one is that we need to join him in the work that he's doing. And then finally, the implication of both of those things, that God is at work and we need to join him, is that we need others to help us in that process. So God is at work, we need to join him, and we need others to help us in the process. So Jesus begins by making this this simple but profound statement. My Father is working until now. God is at work. That's the central tenet of what Jesus is saying. Not just then, but what the Bible is going to tell us from beginning to end is that God is continually at work. The, The truth of our life is that the Father is constantly working. He is at work around us. Therefore, when we ask one another the question, what's Jesus doing in your life? Some of you have heard that question for 
decades, and you're saying, oh my goodness, do we have to ask that question again? Can I tell you, that is a normative and formative question for believers. Here's what I mean. Normative in that God is always at work. And so when we're asking the question, what's Jesus doing right now? All we're doing is recognizing what we know is happening. If we know that God is always at work, then we should regularly, normally be asking, what is that? What is the work that he's doing? But it's also formative, meaning that when we ask that question regularly and answer that question regularly, we begin to see differently the work that he's doing. We begin to recognize it more. When we ask one another the question over and over again, what's Jesus doing right now? And that becomes part of our formation. Now, when Jesus is working around me, which he's constantly doing, we're immediately aware. We recognize it because we're formed in, to, to be able to respond to it. So the first thing that Jesus says is the Father is working until now. And then his second phrase is, and I am working. And so Jesus is modeling for us working alongside of God who is working. Now, uh, if you're following along from a scriptural perspective, you may be saying, okay, well, that's Jesus. Of course Jesus is doing that. He's like God and man both. But what, what Jesus is going to, to show us is that we are equally invited to do the work of the Father. First John chapter 3, John the Apostle writing to the churches says that we are children of God. And he uh, allows it to be like this eruption of worship in him in verse 1. That uh, that is what we are. We're truly children of God. When Jesus teaches the disciples to pray, how does he start? our Father. He doesn't teach them to pray Jesus' Father who's in heaven, right? He teaches them to pray our Father, all of our Father who's in heaven. And so we, as the children of God, like Jesus, are at work along with God. So God is always at work, and we are working along with him. And now as we skip down to verse uh, 19, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. So Jesus says, I'm not working on my own. God is at work. I'm not working on my own. Instead, I'm doing the work that he's doing because my work alone won't last. That's a vitally important thing for us to recognize is that our work, when we step into it apart from the work of God, will never last. The eternal work is God's work that he's already doing. And so we need to be aware, formed to, be, to, to see it. We need to recognize that we as his children are invited into it, and that we don't do our own work, but we do his work. Again, at the end of that verse, and he says, but only what he sees the Father doing. And so Jesus is saying, I'm watching, and I'm paying attention to what the Father's doing. Why? Because God's at work. So the first thing that we need to see is that God is at work. Now, secondly, we need to join him in his work. So listen to the second part of verse 19. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus sees what the Father's doing, and he steps into that work. Now this gets a little bit tricky, but there's effort that goes into me stepping into the Father's work. I have to get off the couch and step into what Jesus is doing. I need to sometimes stop what I'm doing or what I'm in the middle of, what I'm prioritizing, and reorient toward the work of the Father. And yet, he's the one doing it. So my effort goes into the process, 
but he's the one doing the work. It's uh, this tension, maybe Philippians 2 is the clearest place to see it, where Paul says that you need, you and I need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who works in us to do his will. So we're working out our salvation, we're putting in effort, but he's the one who's doing the work. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm joining what the Father's doing through my effort, but he's the one doing the work. Now listen to verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Now this is a vital piece of the process. This all comes because the Father loves us and we love the Father. This love relationship is bound up in us stepping into the will of God. Henry Blackaby, years ago, when he was writing about experiencing, knowing and experiencing the will of God, the centerpiece of that process is knowing that God loves us and that we love him. This isn't just um, uh, soldiers taking marching orders from a commanding officer. This is an invitation by a God who loves us to jump into his work out of love for him. Remember, when we're talking about doing the, the things of Jesus, it's not primarily about doing the right stuff. It's doing the right stuff for the right reason with the right motivation. It's a heart transformation first that allows us to be the kind of people that God calls us to be. The love relationship is a vital piece that can't be bypassed. Blackaby, writing about this, says, says it this way. More than anything else you might do, God wants you to love him with your total being. If your love relationship with him is out of line, everything else related to knowing, doing, and experiencing God's will will be messed up. The love relationship with God is at the center. And for many of us, this is a challenge. I remember years ago when I was first learning to read meditatively and imaginatively, something that we've all been invited into this year as part of our Bible reading practice for the year. I I was reading in John chapter 21, and the section where Jesus asks Peter, do you love me more than these? And I remember reading that and imagining that that, that scenario and saying to Jesus, yes. And then Jesus asked Peter again, do you love me more than these? And I know theologically what Jesus is doing is asking this question three times in order to reinstate Peter after his three denials. But in my imagination, as Jesus asked me the question again, I thought about it because it was almost like he was saying, really? And as I thought, I thought, do I love him? And deep in my heart, I recognized I worship him. I obey him. I respect him, I honor him, I desire to follow him. But love, love is a tricky emotion to try to enter into with a God that I don't see and experience right in front of me. And that became a, a core part of my journey, to journey into really being in love with God. Because it's love that begins to change our motivations. Now all of a sudden, when I desire to do the will of God, that's different than simply obeying the will of God. That's the heart of what Jesus is saying here. That the Father loves the Son, and it's out of love for the Son that he shows him what he's doing so that he's able to join him. And then uh, finally in verse 20, he he says this, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. 
Jesus is saying God's going to not only be at work, but he's going to continue to do this work through us. In fact, that same phrase, greater works than these, Jesus is going to speak to his disciples in John chapter 14 when he says, the Spirit's going to come and you're going to not just do the work that I've done, but you're going to do greater works than these. You're going to continue in this process. You're going to uh, see that God's at work and you're going to join him in that work. Central to what it means to journey together is for us to recognize the work of God, what's God doing in your life, and join him in that work. What are you doing about it? It's core to what it means in all times and all places, regardless of the cultural construct, to follow after God. But part of Jesus talking to his disciples in John chapter 14, Jesus talking to the crowds here in John chapter 5, is that we need one another to journey together. Uh, Let me give you a couple implications of that. Why do we need each other? Well, if the love relationship with God is central, we need other people to help us experience the love of God. If the love relationship with God is at the center of what it means to desire his will, to follow after him, I need to have people who are flesh and blood in front of me to experience that love, to love me and for me to love them. That's part of the way that I work out the love that I have for God and he has for me. It's with other people who are flesh and blood. I need to have people who can journey with me. We were never intended to follow Jesus in a silo, alone. To generate that love for another needs the flesh and blood of someone else. That's why Jesus had people walking with him. That's why the disciples journeyed together and encouraged one another. Yes, wrestled together. Yes, forgave one another as they worked out the gospel. Yes, made it super practical as they were part of each other's day in and day out living. But they allowed one another to love and to be loved and to remember and be reoriented back to the love of God. We need help to experience and remember the love of God. We also need help to see what God's doing. In Blackaby's book, Experiencing God, he tells this parable, uh, and it's fascinating. He talks about um, wandering in the woods. And if you were wandering in the woods and you needed to get out because you're lost, this happens to me all the time when I wander in the woods. I can't ever seem to find my way out. He imagines that there's a railroad track running through and that you know where that track goes, and so you begin to walk along the railroad track, but you know it's a very active track with a lot of trains coming on it. And so as you come up to the track, you kind of look both ways, and you see no train coming, all right? So you begin to walk on the track. As you walk, you still see no train coming, but you hear a whistle off in the distance. And then you hear that whistle again a little bit closer You still don't see the train, but you hear the whistle. And as you're walking on the tracks and you hear the whistle behind you, now all of a sudden you're also hearing, you're feeling through your feet a bit of a rumble on the tracks. You still can't see the train coming, but now you hear the whistle, you feel the rumble. At some point in time, wisdom says get off the tracks, right? That's the way it works. But you still can't see. It's interesting because Paul in 1 Corinthians describes the body of Christ within those different functions. Some of us are the eye, some of us are the ear, some of us are the hand. When we experience God through one another, we're able to discern the way that God is working in a distinct way because we have one another. It's not just a matter of using the community to help make big decisions. 
It's about finding the will of God. What's, what's Jesus doing in this moment? If God's always at work, what's he doing right now? Well, if I'm the ear, I may not be able to discern by myself. If I'm the eye, I may not be able to discern by myself. But when I'm in a community of people, those who are walking with me will have a much better chance of discerning what it is that God's doing. Joseph Hellerman, in his book, When the Church Was a Family, says it this way, more than mere advice-seeking is at work here. It will not do simply to challenge American evangelicals who otherwise live life as isolated individuals to seek counsel from others only when they come to a defining fork in the road of life. In the strong group church family model, input from others is a way of life, not a resource to occasionally draw on as one of the several items on a checklist that purports to tell us how to find God's will for our lives. What Hellerman's saying is we, we are connected to one another, not just when we're seeking specific wisdom on a specific issue, but over the course of journeying together through life. We're connected to one another so that we can hear and see and feel and experience the will of God. But to do that, we have to be regularly connected and we have to be honest in the way that we interact with one another. I have to be willing to say, I may not fully experience God's will on my own. I need to hear what you're hearing. I need to hear what you're sensing. I need to be told that I'm right or I'm wrong or that I may not be all right. And I need to be okay with that. I need to be connected in a way that my relationship develops so that when you tell me I'm wrong, I don't walk away, but I continue on in that journey. Journeying together means that we help one another discern the will of God so that we can uh, remember and hear and see what God's doing in, in the world around us. We need other people to do that. And finally, we need one another to stay focused on what's most important. We will and do get distracted. We are people who get off base. And it's in journeying together, in the regular connection of journeying together, that we're brought back on target. We're not just brought off base by sinful behavior. We're not just uh, moved off base by, uh, by our flesh or the things in the world around us. It's sometimes even religious activity that moves us off base. This is a powerful observation from Mark Sayers in his book, Reappearing Church. Listen to the way that he says it. Striving in our strength to get his work done soon becomes living too busy to engage with his presence. We're not doing bad stuff. In fact, great stuff. More ministry, more programs, more education, more mission, more justice, more social media promotion of his work. And yet soon, chasing our God-given purposes without the power of his presence, our churches, our services, and our lives are packed full. I'll keep reading from over here, it looks like. We may still be theologically orthodox, but we're running on empty. Like the church that rightly holds to its orthodox theological creeds, but is slowly drained of spiritual vitality. Or the believer who mentally assents to correct biblical belief, but whose heart is not transformed. The heart of what Sayers is saying is this. We can get so caught up in the stuff of God that we miss the presence of God. And it's in that presence, it's in that, that way of walking through the journey that, that we're given life. And so without one another, 
we can easily lose focus on what's the most important thing. It, if God is truly always at work, and if the way to life is joining him in that work, then staying focused on what he's doing and staying in the center of his presence is central to what it means to be followers of Jesus. So what's it look like? How do we get there? How do we not just meet together in a way that is um, hopefully connecting, but maybe not fully connecting? Well, I want to walk you through this little card, the cheat sheet, and it's going to show up on your screen as well. What do we do as discipleship partners? Well, discipleship partners, the goal is to help us follow Jesus. I'm not so concerned about the program as I am about the function, and so don't get tripped up if you feel like, I don't have a discipleship partner. I don't know that I want, I don't know how that works. But you need people in your life who are doing this. So uh, the way this is structured is that there would be two to three same-gender people who are meeting together at least twice a month. Might be some on uh, phone or FaceTime, Zoom, if you're able to meet in person, my recommendation is at least once a month you're meeting in person so that you're able to interact with one another. And you're doing four basic things. You're connecting together. Um, it's real life that we're living within, and so therefore finding out things like what's going on in your life? How are things going? Um, where, where are you struggling? Where are you succeeding? What's happening? What are you excited about? What are you dreading? All of those things are important pieces of the process. We apply scripture together. I'm going to come back to that in just a second because that's the centerpiece of how we hear and know the will of God. We'll talk about that in just a moment. We pray with one another. We're not just talking to one another about God, but we're talking to God about one another. And that's when we're together, and that's at separate times as well, that we're praying for one another. And then reaching out. The, the Spirit of Jesus in us is always flowing out into the world that needs to encounter him. And so reaching out is a key aspect of what it means to, to follow after him. So when we say apply scripture, um, does that mean we're studying the Bible together? Well, maybe or maybe not. The goal is not so much that you would be reading the same passages at the same time, but that we're seeking to hear the will of God in the moment. Remember, the central question is, What's Jesus doing in your life? The core thing that we're trying to uncover is what's God doing in the world around us and how do we join him in that work? And the clearest way for us to do that is through the reading of the word of God. This will, through both the words and the power of the spirit through his word, most often reveal his word to us. And so the goal is not that we would necessarily study the same passage together or do the same Bible reading plan together, although you may, but the goal is that we are each in the Word, regularly engaging the Word, and then we're walking through a, a pretty simple process, a process that says, as we read and apply the Scripture together, we're observing what's in the Scripture, we're talking about what we're seeing, we're capturing the truth, of what's in the scripture, and we're asking ourselves, where, where am I falling short? Where am I uh, not walking with God? Where am, I, uh, where am I missing the mark? I compare my life to what Jesus has invited me into, and I make a determination as to what it means to follow him. I confess to him um, out loud to my brothers and to God, and so that may be in a, a conversation or in prayer or in both, that I make that confession where I simply say, I, I've fallen short in this. 
I repent. Repent simply means to turn. So all I'm doing in that repentance process is saying, this is the way I'm going to step into the life of Jesus. This is how I'm going to join him in his work. And then we reach out to the world around us. Who else needs to know this truth? Who, who else do I need to be praying toward? Because God's, part of what God's doing is impacting the world around me all the time. And so if God is truly at work, and if he's invited me to join him in that work, then there's going to be a way that I'm to reach out with what he's saying to me. That sounds really simple, and that's because it is. It's really simple. It doesn't have to be complex. But what ends up happening is if we don't have something like this, if we don't just carry this silly little card with us, which, by the way, when we're back together in person, you're going to be able to uh, grab these. We'll have these available for you. If, you don't, if I don't carry this card with me, if I don't look at it and reference it, I will often forget what I'm supposed to be doing. And so instead of looking at this, I'm going to be talking about how the Browns are going to beat the Chiefs this afternoon, which I really hope is going to happen, but that's a side note. Um, I'm going to be talking about whatever it is that's happening in my life right then, what's happening in my family, what's happening in my workplace. Those things aren't bad, but if I don't get into what's God doing and how do I join him in his work, I miss the heart of what it means to be a disciple. And so now just let, let, me, let me speak to you where you are. Y you may have relationships that fit into this category. You may have years ago got a specific discipleship partner and you're journeying together with a discipleship partner. If that's the case, that's wonderful. You may have somebody who is fulfilling that role in your life, who you are regularly connecting with and who's pointing you back to the will of God and inviting you to join him in his work on a regular basis. Maybe you don't call it discipleship partner. Maybe you call it, that's totally fine. But if you don't have someone, a same gender person or two, that you are regularly connecting with and having some kind of a process like this, can, can I encourage you, beg you, now's the time step into this. And I'm saying that not to fulfill the program. We don't track how many discipleship partners we have, and honestly, it doesn't matter to me. This is what matters to me. The, the pursuit of joy that we're invited into, the joy of Christ that flows out of us, that should be attractive to the world around us, it comes from knowing and doing his will. If John 5, 17 is true, and God is constantly at work in the world around us, then connecting my life to that work is the most important thing I can do. And so find someone else to journey with you. They don't have to be your best friend. They don't have to be the person who's closest to you in your life. In fact, um, what I found in my life is the discipleship partners who are most helpful are discipleship partners who are actually quite different than me, who come from different backgrounds, who believe different things. Um, there's a lot of sharpening that happens in that process. And so it may be somebody that's really close to you relationally. It may be somebody that's not really close to you relationally. But you're committing to them for a season to journey together, to walk together. And as you do that, you're pointed back to what God's doing. And so right now, I want to invite you, if you don't have somebody like that, I'm going to pray for us in just a minute. And I want to ask you to, in the pause of that prayer, just to pray God, give me a name of somebody that I can reach out to. Somebody that I can call and say, hey, can we do that thing together, that discipleship partner thing? I, I really need somebody to walk with me. 
And if you don't have anybody, nobody comes to mind, uh, you can send an email into the church. There's a button on our website. You can say, I need a discipleship partner. And then I'll do what I just asked you to do. I'll pray and I'll ask God for a name and I'll send you a name. And I might be right or I might be wrong, but we'll try. So uh, if you find one, that's going to work way better. But if you don't know, hey, we'll, we'll do all we can do to help you find one. It's so important that we have people to journey together.